I'm Effie Parks. Welcome to Once Upon a Jane, the podcast. This is a place I created for us to connect and share the stories of our not-so-typical lives. Raising kids who are born with rare genetic syndromes and other types of disabilities can feel pretty isolating. What I know for sure is that when we can hear the triumphs and challenges from others who get it, we can find a lot more laughter, a lot more hope, and feel a lot less alone. I believe there are some magical healing powers that can happen for all of us through sharing our stories, and I'll take all the help I can get. Once Upon a Gene is proud to be part of Bloodstream Media. Living in a family affected by rare and chronic illness can be isolating, and sometimes the best medicine is connecting to the voices of people who share your experience. This is why Bloodstream Media produces podcasts, blogs, and other forms of content for patients, families, and clinicians impacted by rare and chronic diseases. Visit bloodstreammedia.com to learn more. Hello, rare friends. Thank you so much for joining me today. We've been having some great conversations and hearing a lot of powerful stories over in our clubhouse, Rare and Relatable Room. I host it along with my pal, Bo Bigelow from the Disorder Channel. Please come check it out. We meet every Monday at 5 Eastern, 2 Pacific. Feel free to jump in and listen or say hi, whatever. I post links everywhere on social, so go find it or you can message me and I'll send you one myself. Speaking of Clubhouse, today's guest has the most amazing and important rooms ever. Every Tuesday and Thursday, he hosts a room under the Gene Fixers Club. If you are listening to my podcast, you should 100% be joining his two rooms if you can. He's involved in so many incredible things and has the most impressive bio. It would like take 10 episodes to explain it all. What a brilliant dude. He made a few tweets a while back that I asked him to expand on because I know how many of you are out there raising money, finding cures, setting up advocacy groups, all the things. So he kind of goes in depth on a, on a little bit of that stuff. We also touch on his newly reimagined company, Perlara 2.0, and cryptocurrency. So... There's a lot of stuff. Let's get into it. Please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Ethan Perlstein. Hi, Ethan. Welcome to the show. Hi, Effie. Thanks for having me. Well, I listen to your voice twice a week on Clubhouse and your amazing gene fixers and Cure Odyssey room. So it's pretty cool to have you all to myself right now. I know you're busy, so I really appreciate it. Absolutely. No, I'm looking forward to this. Well, here at Once Upon a Gene, I get to talk to people who are way smarter than myself. So let's let's dig into it. I'd love for you to tell us the story of what inspired you to take the direction at Polara as an entrepreneurial scientist, you know, helping to treat, cure rare diseases. What sort of set you out on that path? Yeah, it's been, uh, I guess that path started now back in 2012, 2013. So it's, um, it's been a few years now. And it, it really kind of got started for me at, when I was at a professional crossroads and just was trying to break into academia and don't want to go into all of the drama that's associated with academia. But, you know, I had always seen myself as an academic scientist, not an entrepreneurial scientist. And so just sort of followed the path of my mentors. But I, I kind of was at a crossroads back then. And uh, my, my sister got a diagnosis of, of a rare disease. And that really opened my eyes to this world and opened it beyond the textbook example of, of rare diseases or genetic diseases that I had encountered up until that point. And that was sort of the closest I had gotten to the rare disease community. 
So that moment, the combination of the professional crossroads and this personal connection to a rare disease and, and all of that kind of swirled together, and then also being active on Twitter. And that's where I was hearing voices directly, sort of unfiltered um, voices of patient communities demanding research, demanding urgency, demanding attention. So that kind of swirl of factors was really the place where Perlara w- was born. And, you know, I talk about now Perlara 1.0 and Perlara 2.0, so maybe uh, can initially just focus on the, the 1.0 part. Uh, the good side of Twitter. I love that. And it sounds like you were exactly where you were supposed to be. Why do you think that budding doctors and scientists don't necessarily decide to go down the avenue of rare and orphan diagnoses and rare disease when it seems like something much more unexplored and perhaps, I don't know, maybe an opportunity to hit something that maybe wasn't before. Yeah, I mean, I think partly it's it's just a function of when you're getting trained to, to be a PhD scientist, you're getting trained by an academic, by a professor, and that's really your role model. And that's what you, you know, those are the, that's those kinds of people, whether it's your grad student advisor, your grad school advisor, your postdoc advisor, they write your letter of recommendation. You know, they, they're your, they're your mentor. You're the mentee. They're that kind. And it's, you know, it's an old school, you know, sort of set of relationships and structures that you have to abide by if you want to succeed. And then there's, of course, publish or perish, which is, you know, this this phrase of, well, you have to constantly put out papers and have to put out papers because you need to get the next grant and grant only gets funded if you've got the papers and you can kind of see this loop where you just have to, you know, you just focus on the getting your foot right in front of the other, you know, and, and so I think you just don't have the role models and and then you also don't have like the perspective that oh yeah that behind behind this gene could be a muta- a mutation in a child or or a person and it's not just some phenotype in your lab notebook so like, to, to nobody's nobody's fault or nobody's fault it's you, this is just the academic system kind of perpetuating itself but i think the net result is that it kind of doesn't let scientists realize i think their entrepreneurial potential it doesn't necessarily give them easy view into, you know, the translational or human side of the biology that they might study very passionately in the lab. But I, I think that times are changing. And I think COVID is COVID has played a huge role in that because we were told it's going to take 10 years or whatever, however long it has taken in the past to make a vaccine. So that therefore, that's how long it's going to take to make this vaccine. And boy, were those pundits wrong. <laughs> so I think maybe scientists feel a little bit of their oats now and think, hey, you know, scientists are the OG creators. You know, they they created a medicine out of thin air that saved the world. And not just one company, but multiple groups, big companies and small companies working together, Pfizer and BioNTech. So I think that was, I think that has been very motivating and life in some ways, maybe even life-changing for, for scientists. I've met many academic scientists who have now realized they're entrepreneurs and it's partly because of this, you know, seeing what, what COVID has done to the world and seeing how powerful um, science can be to, to fixing the world's problems very, very much in your face. Yes, that's so cool. I love the electricity of it. And especially, you know, utilizing things like Twitter and scientists like you out and about and, you know, following parents and patient advocacy groups and being inspired by that. It's just 
I love how it all connects. It's so cool. So first of all, congratulations on Perlara 2.0. Let's give our audience, I know a lot of people already know what it is, but give me a little rundown of 2.0 that's just recently launched again and what your company is. Yeah. So originally, Perlara set out to be the first biotech public benefit company or PBC and really wanted to put this whole mantra of patient-centeredness to the test and say, okay, great, let's, let's find families and foundations that want to and can become drug co-developers and let's co-develop, literally put the co, you know, 50-50, let's roll up our sleeves and let's, let's do this together. So that was kind of the, I guess, radical proposition behind the company. And I think people probably, you know, I've talked before in other venues and so don't, don't need to go into all of the ups and downs of Perlar 1.0, but, but basically where we are today is what I call a decentralized biotech or, or DeFi company in reference to, or analogy to decentralized finance and, and DeFi and definitely want to go and <laughs> unpack that more. But to kind of summarize what Perlar 2.0 is really all about, it's, it's kind of taking all the things that, that Perlar 1.0 did and, and sort of flipping it on its head because in many ways, the way that Polar 1.0 was constructed was just not sustainable. But I think, you know, the learnings of that um, are going into 2.0 and are, I think are making it much more robust and, and scalable from kind of the outset. So the, the Polar 2.0 really revolves around this concept of cure Sherpas and guided cures, kind of two sides of a, of a multi-sided marketplace here that, that Polar is trying to, you know, bring together. And so what I mean by a guided cure is, we used to call it a pearl quest, but now I think the this concept of guided cure is more accurate because it's really about saying process of finding medicines, for, especially for ultra rare diseases, is highly complex and, and sort of by definition un, unmanageable with, without help, uh, without guides. And so the guided cure is what the family of the foundation pursues and, and they're the sponsor of, of, of their own guided cure. And, and that's very much like the original pearl quest model where a family or foundation is kind of in the driver's seat. But what's different now is that we, on the other side of the table, we have cure Sherpas. And what I mean by that are scientists, PhD scientists in the biomedical sciences who um, may have a full-time job, in fact, but they have five to 10 hours a week of sort of spare brain cycles that they really want to devote to a passion project. And nothing is sort of more uh, inspiring to, to many scientists, as I can personally test to as well, than kind of working with a family or foundation on their journey and actually putting your science to work in the real world. So this idea of Cure Sherpa, I, I think is kind of, you know, as much as I've sort of talked about it, has, has really sort of hit a nerve with, with, with folks. And so I've assembled 20 Cure Sherpas in this first cohort, and they're sort of everywhere from just finished their PhD to 15, 20 years post-PhD. They've got all kinds of experiences in between in industry, in academia, in consulting. And what we want to do here as Perlara, as sort of this marketplace, Places is to match up cure Sherpas with, with families and foundations that, that need to go on a guided cure. Uh, basically, how do you scale the mountain? The mountain where at the very top, we all know what the goal is. The goal is a cure or, or a set of treatments that stack up to be a cure. We don't want don't to you know, get into semantics here, but we know that the ultimate goal here is, is what everyone recognizes as, as a cure. And so how do you get there? And, and that's really this, this matching of the, of the families and the, and the cure Sherpas. The name PearlQuest has a cool name for sure, and you can kind of gather what it means, but the visual that you get from the cure Sherpa and the, the guided process of it all is, I think it amplifies. I think it amplifies like the importance of it all and the grit that it takes to do what you're all doing. And I adore the new name. And you need some merch. 
Yeah. So, <laughs> well, I'm really, I'm, I'm really glad you made that point because especially sort of, because to me, the Pearl Quest was, you know, we were doing this for the first time and there was this kind of playful, kind of whimsical aspect and it's a quest, right? And, and, you know, it's serious or it's serious business at hand, but it was still this feeling of, well, I don't know what's around the next corner. And, but now we're a little bit more seasoned, you know, now I've got a few more gray hairs and now we've kind of been through the process. And so, yeah, I think the guided cures is in some ways just kind of the, the next step in the maturation and evolution of this concept of, of how do you co-develop uh, and become a business partner? You know, how do you co-develop drugs and how do you become business partners with really determined families and foundations? Like that concept is what has not really changed. But yeah, I, I, you can, as you pointed out, it's, it's definitely matured and evolved. Yeah, it's so cool. So a couple weeks ago, I don't know, actually maybe a couple months ago at this point, you made a tweet. And speaking of the evolution of it all and what you've learned and what you're bringing with Polara 2.0, I kind of wanted to go into that that Twitter thread that you made because I know so many families personally and so many patient advocacy groups or even parents that don't have one yet email me all the time asking me to connect them to so-and-so who've done this or you know, ideas on where they should start. And I think especially with social media and Twitter, more people are getting motivated to actually sitting at the table and getting involved in this stuff and learning about it. Right. Mm, absolutely. Um, absolutely. Yeah. And like you said, like we're just parents and we're teaching ourselves all of this stuff. So I'd like to go into those tweets you made because they're super informational and I think it would serve as a really great guide for a lot of our listeners. So here you said, these are the five common tactical errors that you see being made over and over again by recently diagnosed, emotionally overwhelmed families without monetary resources or connections who are nonetheless pursuing cure-focused research as quickly as humanly possible. So you said funding follows the plan, not the other way around. Can you explain that? Yeah. So what I see happen a lot is you kind of focus on a deliverable, a tangible, a project, something you can kind of wrap your mind around, something you can fundraise around, something you could build a GoFundMe around or, or kind of those traditional types of you know, crowdfunding campaigns. And that's great because there's all that energy and you've got all that adrenaline uh, that you want to put into sort of, you know, raising funds. But I think the challenge is, okay, what happens when you get your funding goal? What happens if you blow through your funding goal and you get all your stretch goals? And then what if it just turns out that a year from then, the science turned to be turned out to be trickier than we initially thought, you know, and you've kind of essentially spent all the funds and you didn't really have other projects going because you threw all your energy into this project because, you know, and not always, but sometimes it, that project is a gene therapy project where it's, you know, there, there are aspects of gene therapy where you can make claims about one and done and it's a cure and you just have to, you know, you just have to, you know, prove X, Y, or Z, and then you can get this experimental gene therapy. And I think all too often biology ends up being, uncooperative, unfortunately, and things end up re having required a plan B and a plan C and often a plan D, E, and F. And sometimes you have to go deeper into the alphabet, unfortunately, because that's, again, the nature of science. So when I say funding follows the plan, and not the other way around, I mean, you know, the temptation in the beginning is just to, to do something, to, especially in action just feels so you know, just so wrong. You just have to be doing something. But I think that a little bit of that energy, you can, you can definitely throw your energy behind a kind of low-hanging fruit project. And again, in many cases, that is a gene therapy type project, but sometimes it's something else. So don't, I'm, not, I'm not arguing that you shouldn't get behind 
what like the community of scientists and experts say is like the lowest hanging fruit right right before your eyes like of course you should you should go after that with intensity but at the same time and this is kind of the key part is you have to build out that bigger plan because if you have the plan anticipates you know what happens if plan a doesn't go according to plan then you now have a, a way to think about how you would fundraise for those contingencies and then it also i think means you can potentially access certain types of funders um, and access certain types of partners because having the multiple plans sort of shows and indicates to those partners that you know you've got that level of sophistication where you're understanding that drug development is this failure prone process and where you're not just going to get over the finish line with urgency and hope and and luck like those all will be a part of this and you have to have a prepared mind and a prepared team for those opportunities but you still have to basically plan for there to be dead ends and um, and cul-de-sacs and so that's what i kind of mean by funding follows the plan is if you can think about a multi-year strategy um, if you can think about commercialization even then all of a sudden you can access much bigger pools of funds than having to kind of go back to your social network over and over again in the classical fund crowdfunding way or the gofundme model where it's kind of one project at a time and i think very quickly you your community everybody kind of goes through a, a kind of exhaustion at a certain point if you're doing projects in series sort of one after the other instead of parallelizing from the outset yeah, I mean, I think the energy from the initial birth of an advocacy group or a diagnosis is to put up a Facebook birthday fund, to put up a GoFundMe and to do all of those things. And the question is, what do those parents do in the beginning when that is something that you should do? Because like you said, you, it feels wrong to do nothing. But how do they how do they get someone to kind of wrap their arms around them? Or where do they seek out resources to not just drain their bank account and do this over and over? Like, where is that first door that they should go into when a highly motivated parent is actually planning on doing something? I mean, of course, I think I would argue that you should come knocking on our door. And, you know, there's others in the community that are offering, I think, portals into what would be a cure odyssey. And there's there's different disembarkation points. Uh, I'm not going to say Pilar is the only way, you, you know, you can start. And there is a kind of right now a sweet spot in terms of where an organization or a family or a foundation is in its evolution and where that's a great place to kind of get things going. But but I think, you know, oftentimes that first door, it, you know, really should be to that scientist or handful of scientists that have kind of dedicated their careers to the gene that up until that point you had heard the name of that gene that though that string of letters and numbers you know may have meant nothing to you but but those string that same string of letters and numbers meant everything to that scientist right and that was just because it was a, some gene and some pathway and without any you know that that scientist was committed to this maybe without even any knowledge that there was a there was a human side to this or a human consequence to to mutations in that gene but I think often if you, you, you kind of identify who are those scientists who just really understand the, the biology and the gene the best and who are those people you kind of need in the beginning, you know, kind of telling you, here's the lay of the land, then making that connection is probably the most important because, you know, at the end of the day, if you work with a team like Perlara, it's not like Perlara is going to reinvent all the knowledge around your gene or, you know, pretend to, to pass as an expert in that, in that gene. No, the reality is there is there are a scientist, a group of scientists who have, again, maybe sometimes dedicated a career to that gene. And those people are the ones you sort of have to first seat at the table. And hopefully those folks are also good people. <laughs> and that often is the case. But sometimes you have to plan for that 
not being the case. And that, you know, that person is a difficult person for one reason or another. And, you know, we're all adults here. We can kind of speak frankly, right? Like, you know, sometimes it's easier to do business with some people than others, or sometimes it's easier to be colleagues with some people than others. And we all know the various reasons why, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not subtweeting anybody here, but I think that first, those first sets of connections you make when you're just trying to anchor yourself to something and not just be feel like you're pounded in this ocean and there's a storm and sending you off in direction you have, you have no idea, you know, you need to find some anchor points and that's the, the scientists usually. And then of course, you know, very quickly you tend to find some, another family or someone else in the community that, you know, is like-minded, there's chemistry, there's similarity of purpose, alignment of, you know, that you're both kind of aligning on the cure mission versus the care mission. I think that's another thing early on in the process, you kind of have to maybe look in the mirror sometimes and, and say, what, what are we going to do? Because if you try to do the care and the cure mission, you're, you're trying to do it all and you're going to do neither well. And there's no shame in having a care-focused mission and an advocacy and an awareness mission, but that's different than having a research or what I call a cure-focused research. Because it's not just about research like, oh, I want to make this model because my scientist tells me it's a good idea because it'll get them a paper. You know, it's like, yeah, how do you, how do you really do the experiments that are going to, that are going to matter to getting uh, a therapy in play or, or a class of therapies in play? Love that distinction. And yeah, not not necessarily reinventing the will, like you mentioned, but learning from others' mistakes and going in with like a consultant in a way, rather than just kind of flying blind and going by the passion of trying to cure your child, because it can it can blind you a little bit. Absolutely. So your next tweet, you talked about it a little bit about putting all of your eggs in one basket and not necessarily completely financially, but in in forms of cure. Right. Mm -hmm. So maybe one family is or maybe one patient advocacy group has no time for, you know, gene therapy or drug repurposing. And it's this way or the highway. What would you say about that? I think that what I've kind of see happen is that you just inevitably get focused on on sort of one thing because that's kind of all the capacity that the group can manage. And so, and usually it's like maybe down to a family or one parent individual who's really the, the driving force. But I think it's sort of like, you got to take a collaborate and conquer approach. And that means you got to, you got to diversify. So if someone's really gung ho about gene therapy or some other tactic, great. Then, then how do you coordinate so that the other, other people who have equal intensity and, and equal desire to see a medicine, how do we make sure that not just simply duplicating efforts or, or just trying to engage the same limited resources or capacities. So again, it's, it's hard to sort of, you know, say to folks who are starting out, like, don't use all this energy. Don't, and, and of course, like, don't spread yourself too thin is a piece of advice you tend to hear in business. And, 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 and so you want to kind of acknowledge that, but you know, it's also that you got to spread your bets a little bit because you just don't want everything to be just attached to one therapeutic modality or attached to one lab, attached to one PI. I think any any case where you can avoid a sort of single single nose, single point failure where everything kind of comes down to a, a binary outcome and it's, you know, does this medicine work in the mouse model? Yes or no? You know, or does this does this researcher get the, their other grant funding come through and keep the lights on their lap? Yes or no? Like there are these things that can happen that despite every despite everyone's best intentions, I'm never about that. It's just that life happens, stuff happens, and you just can't have all your eggs in one basket for, for that reason, because then you just can't afford the, the cost and time of having to find another lead researcher or pick up another therapeutic thread, you know, from scratch and not having, you know, had that kind of 
in your back pocket as a plan B or C. Yeah. My friend, Mike Gralia, whom I'm sure you know, talks about it as time is brain. And I think that's a really good way to think about it, right? Like you don't want that gut punch that ends everything for you. And you'd put all of your effort and time and money and hopes into this one thing. And then for whatever reason, it doesn't work out. It can derail you. It can take the winds out of your sails and perhaps make you not even continue to work on anything for the gene. All that advice was sort of like, the, the, the kind of boils down to, you know, always look around that next corner, you know, don't don't get try to see past the adrenaline or the despair even that that could be quite cyclical and short term, but always look around that next corner because this is not a, a linear straight path. You also said don't just enlist scientists who work on your gene or who are focused on just one modality, i.e. gene therapy, as smart and devoted as they might be, they have no or limited translational or clinical trial experience. Academics aren't drug developers. In fact, that's you. That kind of was like, what do you mean? That's me. What do you mean by that when you bring parents, highly motivated parents, especially to kind of an equal level? It's really kind of putting on an equal playing field, the knowledge and the urgency or like the knowledge and like the, the, the project management and saying, you know, those two are equal. And just because the scientist has all that knowledge doesn't mean they're going to make that knowledge useful in the real world. And what good is that knowledge, you know, trapped in a paper, not having a positive impact? So, you know, really the spirit of that is to say, as an entrepreneur, you are sort of always doing things that haven't been done. And that's kind of just comes with the territory. And academic scientists can be quite entrepreneurial when it comes to their science. But when it comes to their operations, they can be quite bureaucratic or, or they just don't know. And so it's not a, this is not a slight on them. It's just, this is not their racket. This is not their game. Like they don't know, they, they, don't, they don't know what it takes to put together an IND or they don't understand X, Y, or Z about, you know, uh, drug development beyond a certain point because that they just haven't, they haven't been there and they haven't been part of teams that have done that. So again, when, when you first maybe meet a scientist who's, you know, quite compelling and, and the science is, is compelling and could even be quite charismatic, you know, you have to ask, okay, you know, have they gone end to end? Have they taken something across the finish line from concept to, to clinical trial? And even if it's just re, quote unquote, just repurposing, like there's still a lot as I'm doing now, you know, I can attest to, there's a lot involved in, in even drug repurposing, which is talked about as the, the easiest thing you can do in, in all of your options that you have therapeutically. It's still like from the FDA point of view, it's not like it, this is some unregulated process. It's, a, it's still as highly regulated as, as any other modality you would be introducing in, into people. So yeah, I think just keeping in mind that having all the science and all that and all that cred is fantastic. But then the project management, the urgency, the and then of course the brass tacks of, of drug development, like those are things that if you're really lucky, your your group of scientists, your SAB has all of those attributes rolled up into one. But that's exceedingly exceedingly rare. And so more likely, you're going to have to source that talent from other places. And you're going to have to, I think, source it from within. And that's where as the entrepreneurs in, in this process, you know, whether you want to be a drug developer or not, it's sort of like, it's like, well, you, you, there's something you just have to do on a cure odyssey, not that you really enjoy it, but you just end up doing it and you end up doing it efficiently and well, because you're motivated by urgency. And that really, again, is that, that key ingredient that is the difference maker, right? Between a medicine on a piece of paper and a medicine 
you know, that could be going into someone's arm or, or, you know, going into going into treatment. Totally. And I think coming from a scientist like yourself, that just gives that family or that patient advocacy group such confidence. I think it's such a compliment just all around. And I mean, it's just breeding. It's just breeding it all together and making that magic sauce, like you said, with the ingredients there. I love that. All right. Number four, here you're talking about IP and data rights and that they're the coin of the realm and the way you retain control and urgency and that parents clear a path with hard-earned dollars, their children become N of 1 pioneers, and then the company developing the drug abandons the program, leaving you powerless. Yeah. I mean, we all know our friend Amber Freed and her her taking to social media to to sort of get access to a drug that was basically being um, kind of kept up like, you know, Rapunzel up on the up in the tower and kept kept away for no good reason when in any other country, you know, you it would be accessible and, and affordable. So we know all too we're all too familiar with what what sort of sometimes has to be done in order to kind of get get the right thing to happen. Truly listening to the parents, families who came before you, we sort of touched on that, especially if they f- not necessarily failed, but if a treatment didn't come in time for them. Learn from their experience. It might sound obvious, but newly diagnosed families don't always heed the advice of those who came before them and don't repeat the same mistakes. Yeah, I mean, even going back to that, that connecting it to the, the, the point you just made, like something even simple, super simple, like, you know, a sponsored research agreement and, you know, having at your fingertips sort of like a, a version of that document that's, you know, in the business we call founder friendly, like when if you're investing, you know, you want to have terms that are friendly, friendly to the founder versus investor, you know, you know sound more, more, more pro investor. So in a lot of these sponsored research agreements, you know, there are people who've come before who've negotiated terms where the sponsor retains all the right. And it's like, you don't want to be learning that mistake and making that mistake yourself where you get into an agreement, even if it's for a preclinical mouse study and you're like, wow, what could be the IP implications here? It's really just about saying you're the sponsor in principle. That means you own the rights and because uh, you're paying them to do the research. <laughs> and, you know, I think just, just those little things and getting those little things, you know, off the bat, like having the right set of doc- documents and templates, like these are things where at some point, you know, you know, these documents end up being shared on the Slack channel, the Rare Crusaders channel. And it's like, that's, that's the place where you can kind of very quickly figure out, okay, I don't need to try that because someone else tried that. And I can go back to the channel and see the, when that was done a year ago, or here's a document where the same question was brought up about, does the sponsor own the results or does the, does the university that's doing experiment own the results and just not having to, you know, make those little rookie mistakes and just, you know, right off the bat, also projecting this kind of sophistication and, you know, universities and these other partners and CROs and so forth will start to realize Hey, you're serious here. You're you're not someone we can just walk all over here because you're negotiating the way we expect you know real real business people do, right? And so you can kind of have that that confidence and have those skills from the outset. Then it just you know that compounds over time in a positive way. Yes, knowing that you're just not at their mercy. Exactly, and and that feeling of a power that comes from yeah, sorry, that feeling of like empowerment that comes from real from knowing yeah, you just you don't have to just take yes or accept anything because you're desperate, right? You, this is a, you're on a more equal playing field here than, than you may realize. Yeah. And I think with parents sharing their homework more often now that you don't just assume that things are under lock and key, like you maybe would have before. 
Exactly. Yeah. I love that sharing their homework. Exactly. We need, it's just like, this is everyone studying here, group learning. That's the way this really, uh, I think, benefits the most people, the, the fastest. Yeah. So what are some of your ideas on ways for patient groups to actually make a self-sustaining, like financial model for themselves? So they're not just, you know, maxing out their credit card every time. Going back to that original thought of, of decentralized biotech and you know, I think the real way to crack the nut of, of the long tail is on the financing side. I think we all are painfully aware of that. And I would like us to try to, to see more experiments on the crypto side of things. And I don't know if that's a, you know, a hot button subject for some, and maybe some people hear that and they think certain things and other people think other things. And I, I want to have a, I want to sort of introduce that, that concept in a, in a, in a balanced way. <laughs> I'm not trying to hawk any Dogecoin here or nothing about that. This is actually saying, Hey, crypto technology is being applied in the world of financing. We're seeing that in, uh, in, in decentralized finance and DeFi, you know, there's, you know, over a trillion dollars of value sitting in sort of um, essentially crypto assets. And most of that is just, Bitcoin sitting in people's, you know, digital wallets, really doing nothing. And so the thought is, what if you could start to put that to work? And we know that crypto is a place where small vocal communities are, are able to sort of set their own, chart their own destinies. I mean, you can plain as vanilla example of how you could use crypto as I was kind of getting to is you've got all these people who are holding crypto and how do you get them to sort of stake their position and, and create liquidity pools that you can then put, put to work, you know, investing in other things like the long tail. But you could even imagine a scenario where, you know, you heard once upon a time about initial coin offerings and communities, you know, highly tight knit to passionate communities would, would issue coins, right? That set of stock. And that would be the way that they would sort of fundraise. You know, in, in a lot of ways, they're just variants of, of crowdfunding, just some of it's moved from GoFundMe to crypto assets. But I think this idea that small, passionate communities can figure out ways to bypass traditional funding gatekeepers and access maybe, in the case of crypto markets at least, you know, trillion dollars worth of, of potential uh, market value, if you can put that to work across the long tail. And of course, every long tail disease, every, every ultra rare disease doesn't need tens and tens of millions of dollars. You know, what if what was like? What if you could figure out a way where you could get thousand rare diseases? You know, if you can get them essentially, you know, a million dollars each. That's not so crazy, right? That's a billion dollars. That's that's just a fraction of the crypto markets that are available. That's just putting one million to work for your rare disease and for all the others in the Slack group and all the others out there. Imagine how much that could you know move the needle, right? Especially if you use that in a disciplined way and you said we're going to focus on you know repurposing and, you know, two other modalities, gene therapy and an ASO or whatever your trio of combinations is. Imagine if you could put a million dollars to work for that. And if a thousand diseases could do that same thing in parallel almost. So that's the, no, nothing has happened like this. I don't know if this sounds like I'm, I'm like, you know, smoking something and you're like, what is, what is he talking about? <laughs> but I think that this is, you know, I listen to a lot of crypto people on Twitter and you know, I, I just sort of see what they're talking about and just project ahead a little bit and just kind of apply what they're talking about, but to, but to rare. And this is the vision that, that pops out. So I don't think it's that crazy per se. It's just, it's going to need some real pioneers to experiment with, with some maybe new models of, you know, uh, crypto enabled crowd, crowdfunding. But I think there's an opportunity here to really break the back of the long tail because you just can't have every group try to raise a million through GoFundMe. Their communities and their networks just are not going to support it. So we're going to have to, can't rely on that. We have to break free of people's individual social networks to solve this problem. Any of other people talk about there needs to be an NIH Institute just devoted to rare diseases. And I think that could be, and in some ways, European countries are already 
trying this idea, uh, at least for example, like ASO therapies in, in Denmark, um, or in the Netherlands, excuse me, they are now setting up a system where the state will pay for any child who needs a rare ASO. So any, if there was another Mila in, in Denmark, in, in the Netherlands, they would be covered by the, by the state because only, they only expect there to be a small number of these cases a year, right, across, across even all potential genetic diseases because the country is just small. But, but you can imagine there being a public funded kind of crowdfunding option, which is taxes, is another way to solve, potentially solve this problem. Or, or you, you know, someone in the, in the Slack channel said this, this morning, you know, what if you could take pharma profits and create a fund um, and pool pharma profits and, 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 and that fund would fund these N of one or these, these N of small cases. So I don't, I don't pretend that crypto is the only way to do this. It, it's the kind of the hot topic these days, but you know, there could be plain old vanilla, like let's get another, let's get a truly an, an NIH institute of rare, but you know, that's going to require Congress and all kinds of other things. So I, I almost wonder whether the crypto path might even be more straightforward, but, but yeah, I think there's got to be multiple ways to, to solve the financing problem. Yeah. Ew. And the bureaucracy on that second idea. I think, I don't think this sounds crazy at all. I think the cryptocurrency is fascinating. And if anybody can handle the wild, wild west and pioneer something new, it's the rare disease community. Exactly. And I'm excited to hear more conversations about this and to have advocacy groups start start to just kind of noodle this around. I told you the other day on the phone that a friend of mine in a rare disease group was given the monthly like fees just or the, you know, whatever from some cryptocurrency agency and it was donated to them. And it was over $300,000 in one month of just like random fees that they donated instead of, you know, kept like that's huge three hundred thousand dollars is still huge and if you could like connect all you know maybe some of these groups maybe it's a few rare diseases that all have epilepsy involved what if all of their crypto was together and there was one mission with you know a little umbrella group like there's kind of endless possibilities with how you could do this Totally, totally. And again, it doesn't it doesn't just default to, oh, you mean you're going to make some shady, you know, cryptocurrency and you're going to try to raise funds on it. And like, it's like, no, don't go to that place. I mean, people can misuse any technology. And so there will be instances of this. But I think, yeah, what you're hinting at and what I'm kind of, I think, sketching out because it's still early days is I think a proper way to do this <laughs> where it's like, hey, if like the, the, the big investment banks and Goldman Sachs and others are getting into Bitcoin, you know, you know that there's something legit about it. Uh, so it can't all just be Silk Road and like, you know, the dark web. And uh, so, so, yeah, so I think I think it would be great to have more constructive and sort of non-politicized conversations about crypto technology and how it can help with financing. But But, you know, of course, then for equal time, I would say, yeah, let's have people talking about and, and, and making an international institute of, of, of rare and thinking about a, a, a more maybe top down, you know, as much as I might prefer a bottom up approach, let, let's make room for a potential a top down strategy because maybe maybe they can coexist. Maybe they should coexist. I don't know. But we should be having these conversations in a serious way, I think. And making a rare disease stock market. <laughs> Well, look, I mean, it, it, that's exact. I mean, in some ways, that's kind of what we're saying is that every rare disease is probably going to every gene is going to somehow make a make a debut in, in some common disease or, or some 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 other part of biology other than just the rare disease. You might have first seen that gene. And so I think not every gene is not every rare gene is going to be like, you know, panning for gold. And that shouldn't be the attitude. But it's inevitable the way biology is and the way cells are built that learning about this ultra rare disease 
there's a chance you're going to have an impact on something much that impacts many more people. And you don't know when and how you're going to figure that out, but it's probably, you know, might, might happen. So if there was a way to, on the financial side, capture that upside and tell people, Hey, you're making an investment today in a rare disease, but guess what? There's a, there's a small chance, a 5% chance in, in 10 years, it could have some outsized impact. Hey, you know, if you're an investor, some folks would like that timeline and be comfortable with a long wait for a payday. And if there is a chance for a, a small chance for a huge payday, even even better, right? So uh, these these are the kinds of solutions I think we need to start to put into into play. Yeah, totally. I hope to hear these conversations on uh, some upcoming gene fixers groups because it's a fascinating topic, and I think the stigma is definitely starting to be a little lessened on the matter too, which is cool. Yeah, no, there's definitely some A16Z um, experts on crypto, and we know A16Z backs Clubhouse. So I'm, I'm trying to figure out if I can get an intro <laughs> to one of those kind of crypto gurus and, and get them on Gene Fixers and say, hey, let's think about a rare disease stock market. Let's think about, you know, how do we, you know, use crypto crowdfunding for, for rare and really have uh, that high level quality conversation. Totally. Well, Ethan, I know you're so busy and you have to go soon. And I could talk about a million things with you because the energy and the heartbeat behind what you do for a living is it's it's palpable and we're really grateful to have you fighting for our community so i think the importance of all of this is start with a cure roadmap and get one of these sherpas over with ethan because man there's a strong force behind any sort of path to a treatment or a cure i think yep is there anything i didn't ask you ethan that you want to make sure to leave leave our listener with no, I'm, I'm really glad we, we kind of went over those tweets and got a chance to unpack those some, some more. Hopefully that was, you know, helpful for people to hear. And yeah, thanks again for just giving me uh, a chance to, to talk about what, what we're doing. Pleasure is all mine. Real quick, tell everybody where they can find you on Clubhouse. Yeah, I mean, Twitter, it's just, um, I guess I'm E-P-E-R-L-S-T-E, at, at, uh, but it's just, you, you know, you can just find me on Twitter if searching my name on Clubhouse. I think I'm, I'm, I, I'm just at Ethan because I got in there. Thank you, Rohan. I got in there early. And otherwise, yeah, you can you can just find me at Ethan at Perlara.com if you want to email or just Perlara.com for any more information about, uh, about what we're up to. Cool. And yeah, to join those Clubhouse rooms, you don't have to be on just iPhone anymore. Join Clubhouse. Ethan hosts a room every Tuesday and Thursday, 3 p.m. Pacific on Tuesday, 2 p.m. Pacific on Thursday. And they have these kinds of conversations and they're just rich and full and great, a great way to connect with other people. So anyways, Ethan, thank you so much for talking through all of this with me. I'm really inspired by you and I look forward to listening to more of your rooms. So thanks for joining me. You're very welcome, Effie. Thank you again for giving me a chance to, to speak. I hope you've been enjoying this podcast. If you like what you hear, please share this show with your people and please make sure to rate and review it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also head over to Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter to connect with me and stay updated on the show. If you're interested in sharing your story or if you have anything you would like to contribute, please submit it to my website at effieparks.com. Thank you so much for listening to the show and for supporting me along the way. I appreciate you all so much. I don't know what kind of day you're having, but if you need a little pick-me-up, Ford's got you.